0: Welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we are discussing the Emergency General Surgery CPG with Commander Jacob Glazer and Major Andrew Hall. Commander Glazer is currently serving in the U.S. Navy as a Trauma and Critical Care Surgeon. He is the Combat Casualty Care Director at the Naval Medical Research Unit in San Antonio and a Staff Surgeon at Brooke Army Medical Center. Major Hall is currently serving as the C-STARS instructor for the U.S. Air Force. We welcome these two subject matter experts to discuss this CPG with us today.
1: Well, okay, uh, Dr. Hall, so what was the uh, overarching need for this CPG and its purpose? Well, it arrived because on the
2: battlefield, not all people are trauma patients. Uh, there's lots of things that happen out there just like they happen here that need surgery. It's not related to trauma. So what do we do with these people? And that question kind of spurred a a committee and spurred a lot of thought process. What, what do we do? And ultimately they came up with a CPG to help guide that surgeon that's fresh out of training, been, been at like Vanderbilt or uh, New York and has, in in every, every conceivable device and consultant. Um, Now they're stuck on a battlefield. Now, what does that surgeon do? And that's, the whole purpose of this was to guide that person that's used to being in that very robust environment and what to do when that general surgeon patient uh, happens.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I also think this provides a little bit of top cover, if you will, for that general surgeon out in the field. Um, they're used to seeing surgical disease of various types and addressing it in a hospital with unlimited resources, essentially. So it gives them a little bit of a pause to say, let's put the situation into context. Should I, should I not? What is an operational environment mean for this particular case? And then also helps give a document when that surgeon's talking to the line and the operational planners and say, look, I need to do this or that for the patient's best interest, which is the surgeon's primary responsibility. And, you know, get the top cover from their command to say, you know, this fits within our uh, operational context as well.
2: Well, I would say my war, my deployment was a war on appendicitis. There was a if there was a common general surgery procedure, it was the appendicitis. And I know there's not a big database yet on non-traumatic surgical disease, uh, but uh, I know some Canadians, uh, I think, produced a paper on their experience. And I think uh, I, I could probably pull it up, but if somebody wants to look that up, um, they'd probably find that it was hernias, there was variant torsion, I think. Um, kidney stones was a big one. I'm guessing closestitis and appendicitis were up there. Um, You've probably deployed more than I have. Did you see anything in particular?
1: Yeah, you know, we had the the list of common uh, diagnoses in the CPG. I think that's accurate. Essentially, the same diseases you see at home, you see downrange. We saw quite a few of the anal rectal uh, uh, disease processes, the abscesses, uh, hemorrhoids, and fissures, which we have listed, a lot of soft tissue infection. We had a lot of contractors as well, and uh, as well as local nationals. They'll come in with various untreated disease, like you might see on a humanitarian deployment, um, as well as patients who'd had surgery in prior, uh, you know, years, and they were coming back in with complications or um, you know, fistulas or things like that, and looking for follow-on treatment. So really, just the entire breadth of, of general surgery you see, just like you would at home.
2: Yeah, that is probably an important point because when I was getting ready to deploy, I was thinking I'm going to be in an environment where you have 18 to 21-year-olds. Everybody's going to get carnias and all these things. And then, surprise, people are coming with diverticulitis and GI bleeds. And it's it's just like back home, but you don't have any specialists to help you with any
1: of this stuff. So, uh, Dr. Hall, how is surgical decision-making different in that deployed setting as compared to the non-deployed setting?
2: That's a great segue uh, because – It is like home. You get the breadth of all the general surgery, but you don't have any of the resources. So you may not have that GI doc that can scope them and do that uh, bleed, or they have CT angiography and IR docs now that will embolize a vessel. It's you, and you have to remember how to do that uh, duodenotomy and overselling the gastroduinal artery if there is a big upper GI bleed. You have to remember those things that you probably start to forget about because you don't do it or you have all these specialists that can fix them for you.
1: I sort of consider it a little bit like, uh, I totally agree with you, by the way. Uh, I consider it just sort of, it's really classic general surgery. Back when general surgeons did everything um, before we all subspecialized. Um So it's really kind of practicing in the purest sense of, of general surgery. You've got limited diagnostic capability. You rely on your physical exam. You have uh, limited tools sometimes. You don't have all the, uh, the tricks that you might have at home, even laparoscopy in many cases. Um, so you're a surgeon with a knife and you know your diagnostic toolbox, which is your decision making, which is kind of a pure way to look at general surgery. Speaking of that, so how do you approach the patient when you don't have all the tools, the diagnostic tests, or the equipment? How does that impact your decision making for these patients?
2: Like you said, it goes back to that 1960s, 1970s general surgery where you have your physical exam finding, and thankfully, most of these diseases that we Highlighted in the CPG are pretty distinct. Um, you got left lower, lower quadrant pain; it's probably diverticulitis. You got right lower quadrant pain; it's probably appendicitis. But you don't, you don't have that crutch. I would say of a CT scan. You have to rely on that thing, uh, which is your hands and your, your talking to the patient, your history, your physical. But as we get more stuff in Afghanistan, we have some institutions that do have CT capability. So if you are in a situation where you have this young guy looks like you kind of right lower quadrant pain, but you're not really sure. It could be kidney stone. It could be some sort of small bowel obstruction because he had surgery 10 years ago. Um, you have that outlet, essentially, to send him there. So you're not completely alone. And uh, if you kind of have to use that distinguishing, this, that, that clinical distinguishment of, is this person urgent or is he emergent? Does he need an operation like now or is he going to die? Or can this person be kind of medically managed, non-operatively, get them to that place that has that CT scanner that can make more accurately make that diagnosis.
1: So I think that's that's exactly right. We have the um, decision matrix that was uh, discussed and placed into the CPG, right, where you sort of are approached with an emergency surgical patient. Uh, you have to make the assumption that medical rules of engagement authorize your treatment. That's just going to be at a baseline, or you wouldn't be seeing that patient in the first place. And then that first decision point, you would say, uh, uh, agree or disagree, is that emergent versus the urgent patient how do you define that emergent patient for you
2: that's the person that's going to be dead before they're going to get to that transfer location that's the acute uh, belly the guy that's somnolent septic shock he needs source control the next few hours or he's dead then then the not then it gets into this non-emergent who's the appendicitis comes in three days of right lower quadrant pain i'm kind of yeah i just kind of felt like i'm not hungry anymore and i got a lot of pain and found is not working now he can make it for a while there is going to be a gray area between those two where you have that perforated diverticulitis. He's looking pretty bad, but can I get him there? Is my evac time two hours or is it two days? If it's that two days point and you think he's not going to make it, you, you could probably put him in the emergent category because the consequences of waiting too long is probably not good for the patient.
1: Yeah, the algorithm sort of flows into, yes, right, that patient's going to be sick and they need a surgeon now, they get a surgeon now, and you take that. That operational risk or whatever it might be, because that patient will die or expire if you're not, you know, treating them aggressively. But beyond that, if you have time, then you can take an assessment, as you said, of your um, your resources, whether you can get to a place that's got that's a little more robust, whether there's ongoing operations, whether you need a CAT scan or should have a CAT scan, and then try to approach as best we can, you know, first world medicine in the deployed environment. How does that decision making differ for you between your your coalition partner or Partner nation forces, your own soldiers and, and sailors and airmen, versus the um, foreign citizen or the other patients.
2: That gets into the world of the command structure. Uh, from what I understand, there's the rules of the medical rules of engagement that dictate who can have certain amounts of care. Um,
1: Assuming they're eligible for care, how do you how do you manage the American uh, service member versus anyone else, or how does that fig- figure into uh, your decision making?
2: Yeah, the American has an outlet. Uh, he's going to go to the roll three, then to the roll four. There's going to, there, our government is going to move any asset to uh, save one of our guys. Um, however, uh, for the local nationals or potentially, depending on what the coalition agreements are, they may be expected to be treated in theater. And for the person that is in a forward deployed location, he only has a few rucksacks of gear to take care of that one trauma he's expecting. If he suddenly is faced with this big Potentially complicated case, he has to weigh the mission versus the resources he has at hand to determine whether or not he can take care of this guy.
1: Yeah, I just kind of look at it like, um, the, you know, the American service member has an exit strategy. So you do your emergent surgery on all of them the same, but you can do certain things on the Americans because they're going to be able to be sent home for follow on care. But there's also because of that ability for follow on care, you may choose not to operate on them and send them to a place that's a little bit more, you know, more of a stable environment. When you just don't have that with your local nationals or your um, your partner nations, it does certainly affect your decision-making as far as disposition. Can this person be managed uh, you know, with a feeding tube? Can you do non-operative management strategies? Do you need to operate early and put the percentages back in that patient's favor? How do you see the balance between the surgeon and the commander when making decisions regarding general surgery? I think it needs to be a team approach. The commander has some different vision, some different uh
2: Responsibilities in the surgeon. Uh, he may require the surgeon to at least put his input into things. So, say they had uh, the commander's high value asset needs some sort of procedure done, and you, as a surgeon, feel like you can do it. But you're in a four deployed setting where you only have a couple trays, you got two units of blood, you only got so much stuff, and you have to have a risk to benefit ratio discussion with both the patient and the commander. Do you? Tell the commander, sir, if you want me to do this, you have to understand you will lose all your surgical capability for the treatment of this one person. And if something happens, I may not be able to recover and the patient may die. And the same thing to the patient. You as a surgeon are here to take care of your patient. That patient needs to know that these are the risks, these are the benefits. You cannot do something unethical as a surgeon.
1: When do you need to call for help? When do you call the, the next uh, level of surgeon or, or even higher?
2: I would say as soon as you can, because that if you're planning on transferring uh, the patient you just operated on or you're looking to transfer now, um, there's going to be some hiccups that can impact your decision matrix. Um, if they if the person that's expected to take care of them suddenly learns that, oh, my OR uh, filtration system is now. We have no sterile equipment. Um, it's probably better that the person gets an operation in your role, too, uh, with your semi-sterile stuff, and then just transfer them to me, and I'll take care of them uh, afterwards. Um, than if you had just sent him there, uh, expecting him to be able to get all the appropriate care that you thought you should get. So I would say talk to the next level as soon as
1: possible. Assuming you have the resources, the um, operative team, the equipment that you need to do the surgery, what are showstoppers for you where you'd say, you know, we're, we're not going to perform it at this facility. We're going to go to a, a higher role or deny care to this uh, or, or delay care, at least, to this um, non-emergent patient.
2: Well... We have in the CPG a nice decision matrix. There's lots of things that you need to consider. As a surgeon, I feel like I could take care of everything, but should you? There's times where you're surprised. You're doing this appendectomy and surprised there's a big mass there. You don't have any pathology. If you're in some rink and dink tent somewhere, um, you probably shouldn't have operated on that. So you have to think of that possibility. So we try to put some guidelines in there. Uh, do we have adequate diagnostic capabilities? Do we have adequate OR staff? Sterility, specimen handling. Do we have remaining capacity? You can operate on them, um, but you, how can you take care of them? What if things do happen? What if he has a bleed, something you weren't expecting? Can we maintain this patient now for two or three days until the, the evac uh, capability arrives? Um, do we even have that transport? If you have all those things, then you potentially go ahead and operate. But if you don't, I would strongly suggest not doing it if he can live a while and without any undue morbidity.
1: Yeah, we ran into quite a bit of the the minor procedure. Somebody wants the lump taken off because they're, you know, they don't want to have it done when they get home to convalesce and things. And I think that what you mentioned about pathology is a huge issue, right? So you don't want to take off uh, what seems to be a tiny lipoma and put that patient at risk that it's something worse. And uh, the path is now, you know, somewhere between Afghanistan and Germany and the United States to be read, lost to follow up, et cetera. It's just not the right thing for that patient. And it can delay. And I, that takes sometimes a conversation with the patient who wants to get that sort of stuff done. Of course, that's a purely elective thing. And as you said earlier. Yeah, I,
2: I have personally back. taken off lumps that, uh, surprise, it was, it was, you thought it was a lipoma, but now you have this germaridofibrosarcoma, and it would hate for him to have inadequate treatment.
1: Right, and that's just not a, not a fair thing for the patient. So, again, you know, patient, patient first, uh, which is our role as physicians. So would you uh, briefly uh, talk about antibiotics in the deployed environment?
2: I know after teaching a couple ASD courses um, or whatever whatever we call them now, uh, the Ford surgical team uh, courses, uh, there's a limit to what you can carry. We can't have the whole gamut of antibiotics that are potentially at academic centers. You are limited to what you can carry, which generally consists of like in and sometimes other antibiotics. I think ANSEF goes in there too, but in general, in is what we use because that's what you'll use in trauma. Um, and it's a good antibiotic. Um, it covers most things, and it's better than nothing. But ideally, you should be treating a targeted therapy, and in the deployed setting, before deployed setting, you, know, you don't have real good access to culture data. So you're going to treat with what you got, which is generally vertebrate. So as a chief of trauma, I know you were down there. That's how we met. What do you think the balance between the surgeon and the commander when making decisions regarding general surgery should be?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic between the line commander. I had a um, pharmacist as my CO, so he had some sort of um, medical exposure and, uh, and things. We then had another um, level of Army leadership on the line side above us. Um, sometimes mission requirements are dictated to you for various reasons, political reasons in the, the region. There might be relationships that are being developed between our um, operatives and, and local nationals that need to be fostered and you're presented with some unique situations where you have to decide, or kind of uh, walk a line between what the patient needs and what you can perform and what what fits the mission. We had quite a robust holding capacity, so um, we certainly could do some surgery and recover those patients without a detriment to our, our primary mission. Really, I don't think that is true at the role two or, or farther forward. Certainly these austere surgical teams have essentially no holding capacity and very limited operative capability. So if you're gonna to choose to use that space to do a non-emergent operation, that is going to put an impact on your mission. So I sort of viewed it as I was the, um, the medical lead and I would just have an adult conversation with my commanding officer, try to present as honestly as I could the risk to uh, mission degradation and then try to present as honestly as I, I could the risk to the patient for doing something or not doing something and, um, and come up with a strategy that would suit our mission and our, and at that particular moment. I think it's a lot harder to do at the role two in the in the farther forward setting. You've got surgeons who want to be surgeons out there, but sometimes we need to put that aside and do what's right for the mission, if that's at all safe for the patient. Can you
2: expand at all on what it means to maintain mission readiness and what the surgeon's responsibility in that is?
1: How my patient care is going to influence the mission is sort of an, an advising role. And uh, we ran into some some issues where I would take on cases for various reasons, they would use up some nursing resources, um, you know, maybe two feeds for a period of time, um, take up a hospital bed. People would come and say, well, you know, how does that, what happens if, we, if you use up all the gauze in the hospital or whatever it might be? Uh, or you fatigue the team from doing, you know, round-the-clock patient care, and then we're gonna get a mass casualty and, and uh, degrade our resources. But again, I just, you know, you try to do what's right for the patient and walk that line. It's all gonna be situational dependent tempo is going to dictate some of that, um, certainly if you're caring for a patient and they're going to be on some seven-day antibiotic course or something like that and you take a mass casualty and it gets overwhelmed, then maybe that patient needs to be facilitated to the civilian center. But, you know, you can't predict the future. You just try to do the best you can given your situation at the time. Well, I, I was just going
2: to say, I think, too, that the surgeon knows all the details of what he can and can't do. Um, you have the OR nurses and OR staff that can count equipment, but they don't know if you know how to use it or what the real importance of that decrepment is. I have a true story. We ran out of suction irrigators at uh, Bagram, and that may not be such a big deal uh, because there's lots of ways to do it, but when it comes to doing things like laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and you have a bunch of infected fluid and gunk going out into the belly, you have no way to really drain it. That's not so good for the patient. Um, And there's a big difference between doing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy and doing open cholecystectomy in terms of patient morbidity. And so with if you the surgeon's not kind of involved in what resources they have or what resources they need, uh, you could be stuck in a situation where there's a belief that you can take care of something and you could be surprised that you can't. Um, unless that surgeon's kind of in into the status of things. And so a surgeon that's in a forward deployed setting may have a lot more knowledge of what stuff is around because it's, it's only in a few double bags, uh, but it's maintaining that situational awareness and being able to communicate that, uh, which is probably going to be different in that setting versus in a civilian setting where you just call up the local hospital or distribution center and, up oh, we got a new suction irrigator for you in an hour. How do you think post complications dictate uh, the type of care that the patient should receive in a deployed setting?
1: Well, I can tell you that we adopted sort of a no mesh policy for, we got a couple patients with hernias that were, you know, incarcerated. You may not be putting a mesh in that anyway, but prior groups had brought a lot of mesh and they were doing a lot of implantables, if you will. We were in a sterile environment, but we've already touched on antibiotics. I just felt like putting in material into patients in that environment was probably not equivalent to the standard of care that I would get uh, back in the States. Um, So we, you know, had to keep that in mind. So I think fear of surgical site infection or concern over surgical site infection is more the question. Um, We would avoid doing certain things just because we didn't feel we had the same sterility, same uh, antibiotic coverage capability, same sort of post-op cleanliness with certain patients. If you dispo a local national back to, or a partnered, you know, allied partner back out of the hospital, are they going to get the same sort of, um, you know, post-operative infection management, you know, cleanliness standards that we would expect in the United States? And the answer for us was probably not. So we would avoid those certain things. Um, of course, if someone did get a uh, post-operative infection, we would, we would address that to the best of our standard with, with antibiotics, sometimes removal of that material. It's difficult, particularly applied to the orthopedic patients when they would come in with some sort of hardware infection or something like that. It, you know, the options for some of these patients were to remove the hardware or treat them through it. Um, removing the hardware would commit them to, you know, even like an amputation sometimes or a non-functional limb because we were the only show in town as far as being able to manage that. So those things all play, uh, factors. But in general, we tried not to put anything implantable into these patients.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I agree. The, uh, the surgeon that operates can't just think in the present. He needs to think of the second and third order effects is if I do this operation, can I take care of the complication? Now, if you, uh, take on these patients, what are the resources do they have in the local environment? If you're up and gone, which will happen in the war situation, so you have to think ahead. Um, can I, do I have the resources to manage that complication if it does happen? And sometimes it's better that that patient get transferred to, than the facility that can manage those complications with the much more robust resources. Let them deal with it.
1: We ran into some unique situations as well, even with our American service members where, you know, we would expect a a certain convalescence period after a procedure. They would go to the barracks, but they would typically, as soon as they could ignore our uh, advice, they would because they wanted to be back out there with their guys. You know, they didn't want to be on the disabled list, you know, and uh, so they would kind of push the limits of what they should have done uh, for recovery. And I think that that's an important thing to consider as well. They want to be back out there doing the mission. They don't want to sit in the barracks on sick leave, while their group is outside the wire. So I think that can play into it too. Uh, you either need to, fo- if, if you decide to operate, they need to be really forced to convalesce appropriately. Um, and that takes, you know, chain of command and, and leadership intervention, you know, or do you let them get through the situation and get their surgery back home so that they don't, you know, put themselves at risk just by trying to do the right thing for their buddies. Do you
2: have any other final thoughts on the contents of this TPG that you'd want to share?
1: I like that there's a flow uh, chart. I like that there's a sort of a, a document that can be used to defend the surgeon's uh, decision-making uh, on behalf of the patient or to defend their line of thinking to the commanding officer. This is not a document to tell surgeons how they should practice downrange. It's just a reminder to say, have some situational awareness. You're not at your stateside hospital with unlimited resources. Um, you're there for an operational mission. How you navigate you know, taking care of the patient within that operational framework is difficult. And I think this document helps remind that the surgeon downrange things to think about pitfalls and gives them a little bit of backup. If I was
2: going out now, not having already experienced being deployed now, I'd like being able to look at this and say, I do not have to be alone. I I do not have to operate on everything that shows up. The appendicitis comes to me. I'm not, I do not have to operate on this. I have a outlet. I can treat them non-operatively, even though I may have been beat into my head when I was in residency. I do not need to do this. I can transport them on and let, let a more robust facility deal with this. It gives them that out. This will help any general surgeon that is just right out of training just kind of understand what their role is and what they really expect.
0: This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.